When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello, and welcome to the Living History UK podcast, a podcast for the discerning and knowledge-hungry historians out there. You can support our podcast and get much more from Living History UK by joining our Patreon from just £1. And by doing so, you'll be a part of an ever-growing community and really help to make a difference as we strive to keep history alive. But for now, enjoy this podcast. Hello and welcome to the Living History UK podcast. I am your host, Pete Neal, and I am joined with my ever dutiful colleague, Stephen Davis. Hello, Stephen. Hello, Peter. How the devil are you? Well, I'm good, mate. Arlequin's one weekend, so I'm absolutely ecstatic. <laughs> I'm sure you are as well. I know you enjoy your rugby, so uh, it's very rare and few and far between when the Harlequins do win, so I suppose you've got to make the most of it. And that is the truth as of recent, to be fair, so that's a good win. That's a good win for us. So today we are going to be talking about the Battle of Waterloo, but not the battle how we know it. Oh, no, no, no. Today we're going to be talking about uh, the living history side of things, because... Um, We've sort of realised that through doing these podcasts, we've kind of neglected our uh, our sort of life in living history over the past few episodes. So tonight we are talking about Waterloo 200, which was in 2015, and then briefly about the second trip, which was in 2018. So Steve was on the first and the second one, um, but I was only on the uh, 2008 18 sorry not 2018 i was on so steve waterloo 200 so how did it come about uh obviously we know it came about from <laughs> from what happened 200 years ago but how did you get involved with it i was i was going to answer exactly how where uh, waterloo 200 came out uh, came about from the original battle but uh i kind of um hoist by your own petard there in a way um but yes, how did how did it come about for, for me specifically? Well, as you mentioned, the the sort of anniversary of the two hundredth and anniversary of Waterloo was in twenty fifteen. That's eight years ago now. Feels like a long time ago. But for me, it actually started back in twenty thirteen, so ten years ago. That's when I started thinking 
about Waterloo 200 and also Napoleonic living history. So before that, I think to give a bit of a backdrop as to where I was sort of at really in terms of living history is I, I started in about 2007, late 2007, early 2008, as many people have done in the realms of English Civil War, uh, reenactment as it was for me then. I've talked about it on previous podcasts. It's been a bit of a journey from reenactment to living history, but I got there in the end. And I did about two and a half, three years with English Civil, well, the English Civil War Society, uh, latterly, but formerly the Sealed Knot. And I kind of just came to the end of my natural life cycle with that period. Um, I didn't feel like I could get anything more from it. It wasn't that fun. So come sort of 2010, I was out of the world of, of reenactment as it was. And I dabbled a little bit with medieval. Didn't really enjoy that. I, it didn't click with me. Um, I, I still find it really interesting, but it just isn't for me, if I'm completely honest. Uh, I had a few years of just sort of, you know, bobbing around, really. Um, didn't do anything living history or reenactment-wise. And then I revisited a series which was on TV in the 90s. And you guys are all going to know what I'm going to say now. It is sharp. And it was on the drama channel one night. I was watching it in bed. And uh, I think it was episode four. Uh, the episode, of course, where uh, Liz Hurley's in. How can we forget that? Um, always remember it for that. Um, but yeah, keeping it clean anyway, there was the 95th on there, of course. There was all these different uh, sort of uh, Napoleonic groups. And then I started Googling and I started looking at, oh, I wonder if there's any Napoleonic living history or reenactment groups. And came up with the with the 95th, of course, all five or six groups that there were in the UK at the time. And I thought, hmm, that's a little bit overdone. And then onto the screen stepped Sweet William and a uh, sort of ragtag mob of riflemen with green jackets and scarlet facings, the 5th Battalion, 60th Regiment, which have an amazing, colourful history in their own right. We'll go into that in more detail in due course because their story is just not told enough at all. But anyway, I'll, we'll sidestep that for a bit. And I thought, oh, 5th, 60th, quite interesting. No one was really doing it at all in the UK. And I thought, oh, this, yeah, and the cogs were grinding, the wheels were sort of uh, moving around and turning. And within the space of, of about an hour, I'd messaged a friend of mine, Steve Swaffer, and said, you know, how do you fancy getting involved in a bit of Napoleonic? And within a week, we kind of had this idea and started to bring it to fruition. I've been shopping for kit and um, we started looking at getting our first event up and running. So this is 2013. And we're looking at about May, June time. Our first event was at Middleton Hall, of all places, um, in September. I think it was September the 15th, 2013, if memory serves me well, that, that day that shall live in infamy. And we did our first event, and you look back on the photos now, and the, the kit was was not great uh, by any stretch of the imagination. We didn't have a, particularly have a clue what we were doing, but you know what? We were driven by massive bags of enthusiasm, and it was a really good, fun day. Uh, and we just kind of set this group up. We didn't really have a forward plan in that sense. So to, to address your question specifically about how did Waterloo 200 come about for us, but it wasn't until our sort of second or third event by sort of November, December time, 2013, when we started thinking, look, do we want to go to Waterloo? So we had a chap called Pete Wright come in. Uh, fantastic guy. I haven't seen him for, for a few months, but lovely guy, bags of experience and um, enthusiasm to boot. And he said, you know, do you want to get involved in maybe, you know, coming coming to or going to Waterloo? Could we get the group there? 
And I, my imagination fired up because although I'd been watching Sharp on the TV, of course I'd watch Waterloo on VHS back in the uh, late 90s, the film. And I thought, wow, we could actually go to Waterloo and do the 200, the bicentenary living history event there. And that is how Waterloo 200 really came about for us in a nutshell. And there it is, the humble beginnings, so to speak. Yeah, I I, I see what you mean. So I, I was the same when I got into the Pony on XEO, it was the sharp route and like yourself, uh, Waterloo. Well, for me, Waterloo, I'd already seen Waterloo when I was a kid back in like the mid 90s. But um, when I was at school, they that was how we learned about Waterloo. It was it was literally wheeling the television and whack the video in. And then that's your, that was like our three weeks on Waterloo was the three weeks of watching the film Waterloo. But anyway, um, so Pete Wright's come on board. Really great guy because I, I ended up meeting him as well when I subsequently joined the 5th, 60th. So now we're on the, on the road to Waterloo. Um, so obviously you've now got to get yourselves into uh what's the word fighting condition so to speak so how were you going about that was you um hammering the manuals could you source the manuals or was you looking to like other groups on the deponic circuit to aid you into getting yourself up to standard for going to waterloo you know, mentioning wheeling the trolley in on the history lessons has just um, brought some brilliant memories of watching Blackadder through uh, GCSE history, um, which was great times, uh, great times. How the, how I walked away with a B in GCSE from that, I don't know. But anyway, um, yeah, cool. Well, we were, we were rudderless is probably the, the complete honest way of saying it. We had this enthusiasm to want to be at Waterloo 200. How were we going to do it? We didn't really have a clue. It evolved on a daily basis. We realised after our first couple of events that blank firing guns as they were then, which fired little 9mm caps, weren't particularly the best thing in the world. So we started thinking, actually, let's take this a little bit more seriously. And this is where the, the road to living history really began for me. I, I'd obviously done reenactments, the beer and bash element of uh, English Civil War. Um, and then to a degree, we'd started doing that with the 60th in the first couple of events, having an absolute skimful on the night time, camping in modern tents, and then just having a little bit of a sort of a drama sort of a performance, which kind of was a skirmish in the daytime. But we started getting a little bit more serious and thinking, well, actually, our uniforms could be better. And what kind of drill would we need to do? You mentioned manuals. I had, you know, if you don't know anything like the Napoleonic era, where are you going to go and learn your drill from? There's, there's no way you can really do that unless you're in the know. So we started reaching out to other groups. There's a fantastic group who I'm actually I'm actually now a member of, so I, ha I don't just have to say they're a fantastic group. They are a fantastic group. The Coldstream Guards, they sent a, a sort of diplomat down to Middleton Hall, should we say, on uh, one event, John Litchfield, a very learned gentleman in the uh, realms of not just English Civil War drill, but also Napoleonic drill. And he lent us some drill manuals. He told us all about the Dundas drill manual, which is the, the line infantry, the heavy infantry drill manual which all infantry, including riflemen, had to learn first of all, um, which is kind of overlooked in like the Sharp series and modern folklore, shall we say, uh, people rewriting history. And we got to grips with that. We understood it. We we took it down to the nth degree. We we actually made chalk marks on the tarmac at Middleton to, for an actual length of a proper pace. Uh, and we used plumb lines as well um, for a, a metronome for the proper beat of uh, marching which um, is probably a little bit amusing to look back on, but 
it's where you learn your bread and butter. And that's what the guys did. That's how they genuinely did it. And that's where you get a pace stick from, for instance. Uh, so that was an interesting little quirk that we learned along the way. But then we started progressing and saying, well, where do we get our rifle drill from? Now, I'd seen videos of other groups on the uh, circuit on the internet who will remain nameless, but I'm sure we can probably ascertain who they are, doing what they say, say is Napoleonic drill in inverted commas. And I am doing the Austin Powers sort of inverted commas with my hands as well, which you can't see because this is a podcast. Um, but yeah, watching that was quite amusing. So we started copying that. And we very quickly learned from other groups who were definitely worth their salt that, that was just completely wrong and it was made up modern interpretation. So from these groups, and I'm going to mention this group, the second 95th, an amazing living history group who really, Dave Gower in particular, uh, Paul Durant, just to name a couple, Ben Townsend, um, in the early days did knock what we were doing in the 5th, 60th. But we very quickly turned their heads in, this, in the way that, well, in the sense that we were keen to get it right. So they started getting in touch with us and offering us advice because we'd approached them and they were happy to give it. And sending us drill manuals, we started learning um, the uh, the Campbell manual, which is a manual from the late 18, well, the, the early 1810s, so just pre-Waterloo. But then we came across uh, the, the the Rottenberg manual. So Baron Francis de Rottenberg um, was the second lieutenant colonel, the commanding officer of the 5th Battalion, 60th. He was... Um, a sort of con- he was a continental soldier, he wasn't British, uh, but he he was in command of the battalion. He actually wrote the British Army's genuine first rifle manual. I have to wear that very carefully because I almost said light infantry, but of course that's more American sort of uh, rev war. But yeah, many people will say that Sir John Moore is the father of um, light infantry and riflemen. I completely disagree with that. Baron Francis de Rottenberg has been written out of history. And his manual, when you look at his manual alongside what John Moore was learning, John Moore's basis was from Rottenberg's manual. So we mimicked Rottenberg's manual and we started going through all the proper loading drills for um, black powder uh, rifles as they would have done them uh, you know, in the actual period, which was really interesting. And how that kind of health and safety of the 19th century comes into play, and it's still applicable today. It makes complete sense. And it was a really steep learning curve. It was really hard. I was thrust into the position, um, somewhat begrudgingly, of being chairman of the group um, and and also the officer as well uh, and sergeant at times. So I had a lot of weight on my shoulders. And trying to get those guys from September 2013 up to speed ready for June 2015 was no mean feat. So that year of 2014 was cram-packed with events, with us pretty much having no weekends to ourselves, going out, learning drill, and getting ourselves up to speed as a real cohesive unit because we were completely new. We had no, um, the, you know, the common denominator was all the same. We didn't have people who'd been there for, you know, five, six, ten years who, who knew off the back of the hand they could be reliable right-hand markers. Myself as a sergeant, uh, Pete Wright as a sergeant major, as we were, we were learning our trade, you know, on a daily basis. And um, safe to say, it did all come together. We had a drill um, sort of competency test from the, I think it was the Major General of the British Army, Mike Haynes. He came to an event at Donington Le Heath and he got us to do a series of sort of uh, field tests and drill manoeuvres and firing manoeuvres and going through what happens if someone's wounded or, or whatever or injured or whatnot, um, you know, if the proverbial does hit the fan. And that was 
that was really a real test for us, but we passed it with flying colours. He said, you know, you guys are one of the most um, sort of uh, authentic groups I've seen in a long time, which was really nice. And those sort of words are still ringing my ear now. It was a real sense of achievement around the campfire in the night time, the camaraderie and just the feeling of achieving something as a team was just sensational. Yeah, I I know exactly the group that you're talking about. Who <laughs> does this interpretation? Drill. Um, but yeah, like you said, they were a name nameless. Um, yeah, I, I also agree with what you're saying as well is, um, you know, the way Sir John Moore's portrayed, you know, as you know, Steve, I'm a massive flag waver for Sir John Moore. But yeah, you are right. Uh, modern interpretation of uh, sort of whitewashed the people that did actually go before John Moore. Um, he sort of just got completely overtaken, I think, because he formed the Light Brigade um they automatically think he was the one who created everything um but as we know he wasn't but yeah the you know when you do things like that especially when the pressure is on um and you know you got one of the big boys of the NA stood there watching you and then suddenly passes you gives you a massive pat on the back and you know you you've sort of earned sort of earned your spurs in a way especially when you like something like what i find on the living history circuit is you know you do have what i call the big boys and girls of the circuit you know these are the people that are much respected on the circuit they know their stuff and if you get a thumbs up from them then everyone else can just go to hell, to be quite honest because <laughs> apart from those people in the grand scheme of things i other people's opinions mean nothing apart from theirs. <laughs> so we've passed the test and we're now on the verge of Waterloo. So how were how did that work out logistically? Because those of you out there that don't know um, the ins and outs of living history or reenacting is that we are spread out all over the place. So in your group that you're in, you know, that from the central point, most central point of where everyone's from, you could be in a 100, 200 mile radius of that central point. So what was the logistics plan? Well, the logistics was an absolute nightmare, um, to put it bluntly. I mean, I know taking firearms, shotguns or DX over to the continent's a nightmare now, but it was equally a nightmare back in, in 2014, just trying to find out how to do that because no one in the group had ever been onto the continent with with weapons before. And uh, we had to draw on a little bit of experience from other people who were supporting us in the brigade and a bit of digging ourselves. One, one of the guys in the group was a retired assistant chief constable, and even he found it confusing, which was quite amusing. But we, we kind of got the paperwork, the Europeans' firearms pass, which uh, thing of the past now, of course, but um, they, they were tricky to get. And I know my firearms licensing unit weren't too sure about how best to take them over so that was just one facet to the whole journey and the whole trip but yes you've alluded to people being you know geographically dispersed through the country it's a lovely term that is actually isn't it geographically dispersed i'll have to use that more often um that that was a bit tricky so what we decided was uh to try and have a central meeting point um i live in in the midlands if the accent uh you know didn't give it away and we used where I lived as a kind of focal point, so people sort of magnetised towards it. And we hired um, a minibus and a van. So all the kit went in the van, all the people went in the minibus. And um, we, 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 I think we went down, if I remember correctly, on the Wednesday we travelled. 
Um, could well be wrong, but it sounds sounds right, feels right. We went down on the Wednesday, and we just hammered straight down to the south coast. Now, winding back about a week before that, it's just sprung to my mind. We had a lad who will remain nameless. Don't want to drop him in it. Don't want any uh, lawsuits. Who was tasked with organising the messing and food requirements for the whole group for the whole trip, which was I believe it was a Wednesday through to a Tuesday. It was a long trip. So we're going to be cooking food on a campfire, which we'll talk about in a bit, for I think it was 14 people who went or thereabouts. It's a lot of food you're going to need. He bailed. And uh, I ended up picking the baton of organising the food for the guys, which was no Michelin star menu or anything on uh, Pete Neal. If anyone watches Pete's TikTok, I'm sure quite a few of you guys do. You know, let's get to the kitchen. Well, he would have put me to shame. I wish you were on that trip, Pete, because the food quality would have been better. But we were having meatballs out of a tin with uh, pasta board up. It was very basic, highly inauthentic, of course, for Napoleonic. But it was one of those just real curveballs that sometimes, uh, more often than not, are thrown at you before you go on an event. But we got it sorted. I had this huge wooden trunk that was about four and a half feet long completely packed out with tin food and, uh, the, you know, the sort of uh, baguettes that are part baked that you put in the oven. We ended up wrapping them in foil and putting them on the fire. Um, it was just crazy. So that was just another curveball that was thrown. It was a real pain. But then there's all the kit. People were ringing up, you know, a week before. Oh, I can't find where my um, regimental cap is or I can't find this or my boots fell apart. You got people who'd paid to come on the trip but hadn't purchased all the kit. And it was a real, real nightmare. But do you know what? It was 100% worth it. And when we did get on the Channel Tunnel and we got through sort of uh, customs, I did breathe a bit of a sigh of relief and I thought, we're actually, actually going to do this. This is mad. <laughs> yeah, it like having organised things myself and and with you as well, Steve, uh, it is an absolute ball breaker. Um, trying to organise these things for those reasons that you said. You get people that have dropped out or literally like three days before they come up with some form of problem. Um, so, yeah, it can be very stressful. But like you said, it always works out in the end. So we've hit France. Uh, no need to talk about France. <laughs> so we made our way into Belgium and you've now arrived at the hallow ground that is Waterloo. So what was your first memories of hitting that battlefield? Getting lost was probably the uh, the memory that strikes me first. We had absolutely no clue where we were going. Um, we could see the Lion Mountains. We knew we were near, or if not on the battlefield. Uh, we were near a Carrefour, but we couldn't find the way in. Now, Waterloo to 2015 being the 200th anniversary, you've got these huge grandstands that were built for the, the audience that attended. And you've got upwards of about 8,000 people taking part just in the battle. There was loads of traffic around and it wasn't very easy to to get onto uh, the battlefield. So we ended, funnily enough, as luck would have it, in 2018, we actually took the same route down to Hougamon which was um, down a really rickety track that, that cut straight through the middle of the battlefield. We went down that and we had this guy yelling at us saying, you know, you need to go back to the booth up there and get your wristbands. You can't come this way. So yeah, we got lost, but we eventually found the battlefield and there was a sigh of relief, not just from when we crossed um, over the, over the channel, but also when we got to the battlefield, it was like, wow, this, this is mad. So we got, got our wristbands sorted, got checked in 
and uh, we headed down to Hugamon. So the Allied, well, our, our portion of the Allied army was actually lucky enough to be um, sort of cantoned in the uh, in the actual walled garden of Hugamon itself. And we had our um, fire. I'm going to smile about it now because it's such an amazing uh, sort of uh, you know, sort of uh, experience in that sense. We had our fire pit dug in the sunken road behind Waterloo, which is where the um, the ammunition wagon uh, came down on the 18th of June to to uh, resupply Hugamon. Now you can kind of Im- I'm just imagining this in my mind's eye, remembering it. Was dusk was falling on that first night. We got the fire pit going, and looking up this sunken lane, and seeing all the little campfires dotted up there, and everyone in kit, and it was just so surreal. I thought maybe this was what it was like on the on the seventeenth of June, or if not the eighth night of the eighteenth of June, and it was just such an amazing place. But because we got there as dusk was falling, we couldn't really get a sense of the sort of um, size of the battlefield or what was around us. We saw Hugamon, which had been subject to a, a fantastic restoration project um, in the years preceding us going. Investment from the, the UK taxpayer, of course, and a new memorial, which was going to be uh, unveiled. Prince Charles, as he was, now King, uh, was attending. And everything was just set for an amazing weekend. There's a great bunch of guys have come together. We'd worked for over 12 months to get to this point. We were there. We were at Waterloo. The campfire was on. The kettle was on. And uh, our pasta and meatballs was almost ready to consume. Yes, the pasta and meatballs. <laughs> yeah, I would. Uh, yeah, if I would have been part of the group at the time, I would have. Uh, I'd have. I would have probably have taken up the task of of, of sorting it out. But end of the day, you know. Pasta and meatballs ain't too bad, is it? Depends how authentic you want to go, isn't it? You know what I mean? It's mean that was just a means to an end, especially with the person dropping out at lastminute.com as well. So what was the camp life actually like on site? I imagine it was actually quite buzzing. Buzzing, indeed. It was a hive of activity. So when we woke up on the sort of uh, first full day that we were there, we got a sense of the sort of size of the site. All these groups sort of, you know, packed into this wall garden, but then the, the Allied camp was spread out around Hugamon as well. The, the scale of it was huge. One of the takeaway, uh, I know if, if people like Joe Bristol who were, were on the trip will be listening, they'll know exactly what I mean, but we were in 3rd Brigade. Now, 3rd Brigade had the Scottish contingent and literally closing your eyes at night, all you could hear was bagpipes. And when you woke up in the morning, all you could hear was bagpipes. Bagpipes are great in very small doses. But when you've got it for five days straight, you, you close your eyes. And even though I was playing bagpipes, you can still hear them. And it really does just tear straight through you. And that's one of the takeaway moments. I mean, it's great and incredibly authentic, but it was just like, oh, I can't listen to bagpipes ever again and enjoy them. But buzzing, it was indeed. The camp was huge. Loads of different groups, loads of uniforms as well. There was, um, I think there was there was Austrian soldiers there as well, which is quite weird because they weren't at Waterloo, which was weird. Um, but then there was some some Finns and some Danes, which was really weird. It was quite cool. And then they had this fantastic uh, sort of celebration where they put this kind of big tree up and danced around it a bit like a maypole on one of the nights. That was that was interesting. Um, but yeah, it was it was a massive massive site. There must have been well getting on for three and a half thousand people on the Allied side alone taking part. Now, the French camp was obviously on the French side of the battlefield, well out of view. But yeah, it was it was mad. And whereas the groups were getting their, their kit together and going out to start performing and practicing drill, 
for that first first sort of day and working together as a full brigade because we must have spent three and a half four hours one on the first day just going through drill as a brigade which was when you when you talk about it you think god that's going to be boring but you know what it was bloody awesome you had in our brigade around i'd say four to five hundred people so when you're marching in an open column or even a closed column of, of sort of sections that is such a, a sight as you look into the distance and you can hear the the beat. It, you actually feel like you're part of potentially you know real history in that sense. I don't think they'll ever have. Um, you know, I, I hope it does happen, but I don't think they'll ever have that many people on Waterloo Battlefield uh, portraying the battle ever again. It was just the numbers were insane. It really, really was. And when we actually formed Square, um, that was a genuine square. We were we weren't four deep, but we were two deep. And um, we had, you know, probably about, ooh, I'd say, 80 people on each side of the square. And you get the real sense for the size of it, colours in the middle, um, the commander mounted on a horse in the middle as well, uh, all the drums in there. And it was just like, you look around, and we were all looking at each other in the group, and we were just kind of like nodding and smirking, going, yeah, this is pretty cool, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, when you get to operate on that scale, it is quite something. And from a living history perspective, it does put it into your own perspective because in the uk uh from like doing a pony like myself and you'll uh agree with this as well steve things when you go to a to an event in the uk when you're drilling or fighting or anything you know doing anything the allied force or the british forces are an understrength battalion at, at best. <laughs> so when you actually get over there, and like you said, your brigade was what uh, four hundred odd strong. So that's almost coming up to the numbers of one battalion at that time. But you know, it, it does help you start to put it into that perspective. You know, uh, what they do out in America, you know, you can only dream of the amount of videos I've seen of like Gettysburg and things like where you've actually got like proper full battalions doing their drill now that that's something i'd love to do is to do something like gettysburg or something like that um just to get that idea in my head what it was actually like to stand in a like a into in, in a in a cot in a column of a thousand oh, well, column talking nonsense in line with a thousand other blokes um and trying to operate you know because Everything that we did was all on a very small scale because, you know, because that's just how it was. But, you know, trying to operate as a thousand man line to try and move it over to the right, move it over to the left or, you know, go from column into line. Oh, that'd be amazing to do something like that. But, yeah, that does give it a really good perspective. So after the rigorous hours of the rehearsals with the uh, brigade, it was time for the first day of the battle because this because this event it goes across a couple of days it's not all just in one day like the uh battle was originally they do uh stretch it out a little bit but um first day of battle so what what was your what are your recollections of the first day i remember us forming up and we there was a lot of anticipation um it was really exciting as well because it's worth mentioning that or that we were camped obviously at Hougamont, but we had to uh, go over to past La Haysan. So for those who aren't sure of the battlefield, Hougamont on the Allied position is on the far right. Um, it's a it's a chateau building, a farmhouse, if you will. And then about three quarters of a mile um, along the Allied line in the centre, which is where, nearby where Wellington was, 
you've got La Haysan, which is another sort of farmhouse. But the actual battle reenactment was just across the road from where La Haysan was. So this was where uh, D'Erland's corps, the French infantry, um, came up the slope and clashed with the, the British infantry. And then subsequently the Allied cavalry went straight through into D'Erland's corps and then the French cavalry um, attacked the British squares up that that sort of um, gap between, um, I think it's um, Papillot or Plansonwa 1 and 2, and uh, La Haye-Sant. So the whole battlefield is less than three square miles, so it's a tiny battlefield. Now, a couple of things that spring to mind when we were marching from Hougamont to La Haye-Sant, how awesome it was to to be marching um, on the battlefield in kit. That was pretty cool. Uh, we were all in high spirits singing, and I remember us going along the sunken lane at the top of the battlefield, um, sort of past the the lion's band. And I remember the the public who'd come to watch the battle were uh, were clapping us and cheering us, and that was like a really surreal moment. You can almost when you when that sort of thing happens, you you think of the newsreels from World War Two where you've got like the French, the Dutch, uh, a, a greeting you know, the Allied infantrymen as they're coming through. And that was a really surreal moment because they were. They were clapping us, but some people would see on the face of it they were, they were clapping and cheering us um, because we were. Um, I don't know how to how to phrase it really. They were they cheering and clapping us because um, we, you know, it was our country that brought them freedom, I suppose, from you know the French and uh, in the Napoleonic um, sort of era. But actually, they were, they were clapping and cheering us because we'd come all this way. This is how I interpret it anyway. They've come all this way from the UK to to portray this battle reenactment for them. It's a part of their history. And it was an international affair as well. I mean, you had loads of Americans there. Um, Jeremy Paxman as well was there, which was a really weird. Uh, Dan, Dan Snow was there too. There's a lot of celebrities. There's huge media focus too. But yeah, just thinking of this first battle, marching along um, the sunken lane through to, to La Haysant and the, the sheer number of people who who were in front of me and behind me who had taken part, that was cool. All the cavalry milling around, that was wicked. Remember the um, the sort of roadways that they put down were these really strange sort of um, almost like plastic matting that was when you're wearing hobnails was so dangerous. I know a couple of horses were actually killed, um, like quite seriously. They they were killed from bit walking along and, and breaking their legs from slipping on the with the horseshoes on this plastic matting. So that was really, really quite dangerous. But yeah, actually going along the sunken lane, we had such a treat. We could see La Haysant in front of us and the uh, chateau, the farmhouse of La Haysant is still lived in today. And the guy who lives there, he actually opened the gates and welcomed us through La Haysant. We went through La Haysant, through the back, through to the front and onto the battlefield. That was absolutely crazy to think what the King's German Legion held on to La Haysant through um, pretty much the whole length of the battle surrounded and inside this history. It was just incredible. Going out onto the battlefield was really interesting. Very odd. We had these huge grandstands. It was like going out into a football stadium that they put these big grandstands up for people to watch. As we were entering the battlefield, loads of people were, were clapping. As it was, it was at dusk as well. So a lot of people taking photos. So there was loads of flashes. Um, that was that was quite interesting. Added to the, the mood, should we say? But what struck me as I come onto the battlefield was they'd actually left the corn uncut, and they'd done this on purpose because it was on, you know, it was in June, so it was the same as it would have been two hundred years prior, and that's how the corn was during the battle. It was sort of uh, waist high. Now wearing authentic footwear with hobnails on was great because it afforded you a lot of grip. 
However, you couldn't see where you were walking. And being Napoleonic sort of um, yeah, living historians, you try and march in step. You try and keep pace and try and look nice and smart, quite rigid with stocks on. That just went all out the window as soon as you stepped onto this battlefield because, and it would have been the same for the guys. You couldn't march in um, you know, the sort of goose step in Napoleonic drill. It wasn't feasible. There's people going down with twisted ankles in like the ruts in the field because you just couldn't see them. And I couldn't see uh, the French army at all. I saw a couple of uh, cavalry as I come onto the field. And we went from La Haye-Saint right to the far left flank of the battlefield. So it's quite quite a sort of yomp from there through this core. And it knackers you out, especially wearing all this kit. It was really warm as well, being June. So uh, we elected to take our stocks off for the first day because it was so hot from a health and safety perspective. Um, and it was probably a good job that we did. But yeah, just sort of landing on that battlefield probably, I don't know, 20,000 people watching in grandstands. From what I could see, 3,000 guys on the field, couldn't see the French army yet. Cavalry milling around and bobbing up over the sort of horizon because the interesting thing with Waterloo, uh, for those who aren't in the know, is it's not just a flat, featureless battlefield. Wellington specifically chose this ridge line because he put his army on the ridge, mainly behind the ridge. It sort of drops down very gently into a bit of a valley and then rises slightly towards the French position. You can't really see it with the naked eye um, that it rises, but uh, there's a bit of a bit of a hill in front of where we were. So we were in a bit of a dip and we couldn't really see that much at all. Um, really interesting battlefield. And it, it's Whether it's English Civil War battlefields that we've been around recently or whether it's Napoleonic or even World War II battlefields, until you get boots on the ground, you can't sort of speak with experience or authority on the subject as to how troops were deployed without actually being there and saying, oh, okay, I didn't see that on a map, but that's really interesting. That's why he put his infantry there. And we had about an hour before the battle actually started where we were just sat down, um, making sure our pans were primed and we were, of course, loaded, uh, taking on you know water because it was really hot, a bit of food, a bit of chorizo and cheese we had, a bit of bread, very authentic, and just, just having a bit of a laugh, really, which I suppose is not too dissimilar to what the guys would have done back in back in 1815 i've experienced that a few times with um you know doing some sort of event and uh you've got the public clapping you and i've you know like yourself you've sort of come you've come to your conclusion um but the the conclusion i came to um when that sort of thing happens is i i always feel is that they're they're applauding the people that you're representing um, you know, because uh, you know they can't physically thank them themselves, sort of thing. So I think you're kind of a almost a gateway to those people. I think that's that's how I always sort of think of it. So when uh, you know the clouds are clapping and all that sort of thing, and they're you know what you know they're 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 thanking the blokes that we're portraying, really. And uh, and in our, and in our own way, we do that because us, you know, that's our doing what we do is is thanking them for what they did before us. But that's quite a surreal moment as well, because like you mentioned, Steve, the uh, La Haye uh, Sun is a private residence now. So to try and get in there, you know, you ain't got no hope anymore. So even for that brief moment of sort of walking through the door and out the door, that's, that's quite a special moment. Um, so that's the... First day, and oh, actually, yeah, funny you should say that uh, about the stocks as well, because 
that's the other things like you know as the ministerians we want to push this to the absolute limits you know we want to experience exactly what they experience obviously the only thing that we can't replicate is the fear of life factor and being shot at <laughs> that's that's the only thing we can't recreate from it but then there comes a point where you've got to stand there and take a hard long look at yourself and go i've got to go to work monday morning <laughs> <laughs> I can't afford to be ill for like a week or whatever. So yeah, so that's that's all. That's some of the you know our our listeners to bear in mind who you know who haven't um, done anything on the living history circuit or anything like that. So yeah, there is moments where we do have to take a rain check as as hardcore as we want to be. We sometimes just got to take that step back and go, nah, this is stupid. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, so that's. That's the first day of the battle. Uh, what happened on day two? Well, just to touch briefly on the battle of day one, um, there isn't really much to say about it. I can't particularly remember much about the battle because it wasn't that great, if I'm honest. We fought in line a lot of the time and we were just basically firing our rifles at nothing. We didn't really see the enemy. We saw a lot of cavalry. We formed orb and square a couple of times, um, but not really much happened. Um, I think one of the, in, as a sort of experimental archaeologist as we are, it kind of opened up a little bit of a talking point in the group after the first sort of day where one of the guys, I think it was Pete Wright, posed the point and said, you know, what 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 can you each remember from today's battle? Obviously, no one's been like, killed. We had a couple of people. Um, in fact, one person was killed, in fact, on the first day. A guy um, had a heart attack. And on the second day, a guy uh, was thrown from his horse and his carass wasn't done up and it snapped his neck. So people did actually die at Waterloo 200. Um, so yeah, just to, just to sort of reestablish that point. But although no one died through sort of gunfire or, you know, sort of cannon fire or anything like that is what I'm trying to say. Um, that aside, there wasn't really much we could remember as a group. We could certainly could remember what manoeuvres we did. It was just a case of like people were reacting to orders that was were being given. And I think the takeaway point from that was when, I say, a veteran, I mean, sometimes it will be right, but more often than not, I'll have a little bit of suspicion. If a veteran could remember every single thing that happened minute by minute in a single action, because a lot of you can understand why a lot of it is a blur and you will only remember key things. I thought that was a really interesting little point. In, in the terms of experimental archaeology, as we call it. That was good. But, yeah, the, the first day sort of went by. Um, we left the battlefield. Nothing really notable happened. And we marched back to the camp. We were singing sort of sea, sea uh, shanties and marching songs along the way back um, through the sort of, um, you know, sort of dusk uh, sort of uh, environment. That was that was good. Um, you know, people were, were clapping us and sort of throwing things at us and so forth. Good things, though, you know, flowers and so forth, which is quite nice. And people were being handed bottles of alcohol, which was quite good. And we got back to camp. As I say, we had a little bit of a debrief, as, as we do, make sure there's no injuries and, you know, sort of uh, ammunition like black powder taken back in, things like that. And settled down to uh, another um, culinary delight. I don't know what the meal was, but I know, talking of food, actually, it's quite funny. We all had this meal plan with three square meals a day. And uh, one of the guys, Mike Barley, who's an absolute legend I have to add, um, a real character, he was having those three square meals a day, but also disappearing at times. And by the end of the first day, we realized he was actually going to the food vendors and getting beef burgers and cheeseburgers and waffles and everything as well as the food he was actually getting. 
Um, how how on earth he, he did that, I don't know. But yeah, a little uh, duff of the cap to Mike. Nice little memory um, of him. But yeah, the first day kind of goes by. Not particularly much notable happened. Went to bed. We're all knackered. And uh, yeah, then on to the second day. So the second day, they said they were going to jig the battle, battle around a bit in terms of what was going to happen, which was good. It was encouraging. And uh, we weren't really expecting, we thought it was going to be a rerun of the first day, but how wrong were we? We got onto that field and there uh, the brigade commander comes over on his horse uh, and is followed by uh, the guy, uh, Alan Larson, who was playing Wellington. Fine Wellington indeed, good beans. And uh, they gave us the order as the 60th to actually advance in front of the whole Allied army and then um, go into uh, skirmish order which was pretty mad to say the least. So we um, went out into skirmish order. We were about probably about 100 metres, 150 metres in front of the uh, Allied line, if not a little bit more. doesn't sound that far, but with the topography of the field, we were over a little um, sort of uh, rise and on the forward slope, and we could see the whole French army. And by God, the, the, it stretched into the distance. You could see almost every cannon through the corn. There must have been at least 300 cavalry milling around, cuirassiers, lancers as well, uh, light cavalry. We had cavalry that were behind us. We didn't know if they were on our side or their side, which was just so authentic because that's what happened at the Battle of Waterloo. There was um, there was Dutch who were on the Allied side and British soldiers didn't know if whose side they were on because they pretty much wear the same uniform. So that was quite amusing. When we formed orb, this Dutch... Uh, like Hazar or whatever he was, come over to us and he was he said, Oh, you know, we're on your side, which was quite funny. So we were like, mm, are you or aren't you? Is this a ruse? You know, it was quite funny. So that that stuck in my mind. Um, we had the French cavalry come and advance towards us. So we formed orb a couple of times before the battle even started. And then when the battle did start, wow, the the fog of war across the battlefield was just insane. Um, you could really get a sense of just how the, uh, the battlefield is just covered in this smog. And within about 10 minutes of the cannons going off and the initial exchange of gunfire, it was just this thick blanket of smoke. And I, I could only see probably about 40 yards in front of me, if I'm being realistic. It was just incredible. It really, really was. And they had this mock-up of uh, Hougamon on the battlefield that they made out of scaffolding and sort of like plywood and painted it up. Looked really good. That's where the Coldstream and 2nd 95th were. And that was just being knocked to bits by um, French um, sort of sappers with their axes, which is really cool to see. And it was it was just such an amazing battle. It was there's so many I could probably go talk about it for for a couple of hours. There's so many things that I could remember, which is a complete um, sort of juxtaposition to day one and what we were talking about only a couple of minutes ago. It was just so loads of it was a piece of action after another, and the single takeaway moment from the whole uh, event was this. We were firing in uh, skirmish order on this forward slope, firing into the smoke. We could see you know, figures bobbing around. We could hear uh, drums, the kettle drums being played, you know, that sort of rub-a-dub-dub sound. And uh, we heard a load of guys like cheering and uh, shouting. So we couldn't re really figure out what it was. And then they started getting a bit closer and you could hear these drums getting louder. And we worked out it was Vive l'Empereur. Obviously, you know, the famous battle cry of the uh, of the French. And through this smoke, as we were firing, now I'd, I'd put at least 100 rounds, 100 uh, shots of black powder through my rifle at this event on that particular battle. My barrel was red hot to the touch. I had a rag around my uh, left hand to hold the rifle. It was boiling hot. 
And I just remember sort of taking aim, if you will, down the barrel. And through the smoke, these blue uniforms and tall caps coming out of the smoke. And the world just sort of slowed down to sort of uh, half speed. I just sort of opened my left eye and looked up. And I just thought, blooming hell, that's the, that's the Imperial Guard. And like we all looked at each other and we were like, uh, what do we do? And the order was given for us to fire and retire. So we were firing and retiring. And we were like, wow, what this is just incredible. If you did a 360 of that moment, uh, which is forever encapsulated in my mind, you couldn't have got more authentic without people actually being shot. Uh, it was just it was just completely surreal. And we were battling it out with the Imperial Guard. We went in hand-to-hand with them. And this is the point where the, the famous Coldborn's wheel was reenacted by Rob Yule. And um, I think it was 1st Brigade, as they were. And they wheeled in on the uh, our right flank. And um, that was kind of you know the beginning of the end of the battle, just like the original Battle of War II. It's just so amazing to be a part of it. It was just completely uh, awe-inspiring and breathtaking. Yeah, that's definitely an awesome experience. Um, I just, I just wish that I'd been part of the 60th sooner. But yeah, so the, so the battle's done, and you're on your way back to England. So was there, was there any any escapades on the way back to England, or was it just a straight run back? <laughs> Unsurprisingly, it was just a straight run back for for two reasons. Firstly, we were just absolutely knackered. It was a really physically demanding event. A few guys went down with heat exhaustion and they were just absolutely shattered. Um, but secondly, because a certain Mr. Peter Neal wasn't actually in the group at that point in 2015, he was um, on the cusp of joining, which I suppose is a very nice segue for you to uh, talk about perhaps 2018's Waterloo. Now, I think I'm turning the... Uh, turning the tables here and you the interviewer has become the interviewee pete so you can tell us about how your journey uh, of 2018 to waterloo came about dun, 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 dun. <laughs> uh yeah so as steve rightly points out i was kind of on the cusp of joining um so i Came into the sixth year, if I think about maybe three, possibly about three months um, after Waterloo had happened, and again that was just purely by accident. Um, it all started off of me wanting to get a uh, Baker rifle, um, not a live fire one. I hasten to add at that point, uh, <laughs> it was just a, a replica one to go on my wall. But <laughs> but one thing led to another, and I found myself. At a, at a trading event, <laughs> and that was it. Then I was so from the uh, back end of uh, 2015, I became a member of the fifth uh, sixtieth. Um, so it came up to 2018. Uh, so it'd been a few years since the lads who had done Waterloo 200. Uh, those guys had either left or you know we got that little call that was still going um and it was decided did we go back and they said oh you know it's going to be a you know a decent ish one but i think though the better one was going to be the year after but we decided that we just wanted to go because we just wanted to go to waterloo because there's there a few lads who hadn't been to waterloo um i'd visited a couple of times um before then uh nothing to do with living history that's just me on my own sort of thing but um 
And I was like, yeah, definitely. I'd I'd be up for going to Waterloo. That'd be pretty cool. And all the Festa lads were all singing on the same hymn sheet. And then that was it. We were off to uh, Waterloo 2018. And, you know, I was in two minds as to whether to go on the 2018 trip because, being completely honest, I did really enjoy the uh, 2015 trip, but I kind of always thought the event would be much much more in, much more enjoyable is probably the wrong term, but much more um, sort of enthralling than it actually was. I think it was a bit of a letdown. And now with the 2018 trip coming about, I thought, well, you know, I'll, I'll best go kind of thing um, because, you know, I know we'll have a good social, um, but it's going to be on a completely different scale to the 2015 event. So maybe it'll be somewhat different, markedly different. And it was, thankfully. It was a... It was a. It, I actually enjoyed the 2018 event more than 2015. I found we were much more involved with the living history, and comparing and contrasting the two. Although 2015 will never probably probably never be matched with numbers, the um, the enjoyment factor wasn't really there. But for 2018, we had much more fun. I believe it was. Um, it was really interesting actually to see the journey between the kit equipment and drill that we had in 2015, and then what we had in 2018 and i'd go out on a limb here pete and say that you were arguably joined at just perfectly the bang on time um in 2015 after waterloo because we plotted our journey forward as a group to say well let's capitalize on 2015 let's build on it and let's become much more authentic and really um strive forward with the group we we knew we were going to lose some members um but we we kind of had that core that that drove us forward and well, it brought us on to bigger and better things. I mean, I think in a way it, it kind of was the, the start of the journey for Living History UK, really, in a way. Because I know when we were at 2018, we talked about the Dunkirk anniversary march, didn't we? Yeah, we did. Yeah, I remember that. I was not lo- literally not long after we'd uh, got back from Waterloo. Um, we had that conversation on your on your sofa so <laughs> i popped round your house one night and uh yeah we were sat on the sofa talking about it and then suddenly the ox and bucks living history society happened somehow <laughs> um but uh yeah i yeah i did i, I was I, I was actually gonna uh say that in my sort of next piece but i can't now because you already said it Stephen. but yeah i did i did join just at the right time because as i came in everything was improving kit wise and things like that. So yeah. Yeah. So that was arguably the best time for me Um, and a lot cheaper for me as well. So I didn't have to go and buy like a complete new wardrobe of kit. Luckily I just had to buy it all one time, one, one time purchase. But, uh, but yeah, I I really enjoyed uh, Waterloo 18. um, Cause again, we, we camped in Hougamont, which was pretty cool. Um, and the battle was all right as well. Uh, you, you know, what I'm like when it comes to like battles and all that. I'm not really like I, I, I'm never into them. Really, I think that's more like from like the World War Two scene and all that. I'm not really into them. But when it comes to like the black powder stuff, I'm more inclined to enjoy it. Um, just because you don't, you know, with black powder and that, you, there's no need to run around like an idiot. And it's not a black fest either. Um, everything's, you know, it is being done in a sequence and things like that. Um, but yeah, I, yeah, there's quite a lot of good memories from 2018. Uh, fighting through the woods, skirmishing through the woods, that was good. Um, because by that point, we I remember I remember on the other it was this 
cop this copse of well, it's not it's more actually it's a small wood actually, not a copse. Uh, just on the other side of it from Hougamont. And the idea was is that the French were basically going to flush us out of the woods. Um, so we're right on the tree line, and uh, we're, we're all sat there. We're primed, ready to go. And uh, and I'm walking along with uh, Bristol, so I was, I was the bugler. Um, and obviously, Bristol being the uh, sergeant, he was our most senior bloke. So obviously, I, I was sort of following him around. And then the French sort of come over this rise. They they started coming closer, and I'm like, you know, they're getting they're they're, they're starting to, they're starting to gain ground now. We need to start firing. And I was like, like the brigade we got put under, um, it was run by a bloke dressed as a Prussian, oddly. <laughs> I was like, he ain't said nothing, and no one started firing. But they're starting to get close now. I was like, realistically, we could, like, obviously us being well from we could we could hit these blokes from here. And I said to Bristol, I said, right, we need to start firing now. And he and he goes, no, no, we haven't been told. I'm like, come on, look. I was like, right, come on, we could hit them from here. If it's a reality, we could hit them by now, and we don't need to. We don't need him to tell us what to do. We're riflemen, though, so think riflemen. Start bloody shooting. He's like, oh, all right then. And then the order for fire come, and then that's it. Like all hell let loose, all in the woodland. So yes, yeah, so, because of my impatience, it created absolute havoc. <laughs> something, something's never changed there. And <laughs> but it just... worked out though. But it did work out mm, for us, though. It did. And I, I remember uh, John Rogers um, decided to sally forth out of the uh, out of the woods and then the French cavalry come steaming down the edge of the field, which he didn't see. But we'd seen it. And I remember him jumping up like a little schoolgirl trying to run back into the woods and push everyone out of the way, which was quite amusing at the time. But also highly highly authentic as well. But yeah, that was that was that was great because we were at the front, weren't we? Skirmishing back through the edge of the woods, and then yeah. then we we linked up with the second ninety fifth, didn't we? Yeah, we did eventually. Yeah, because I remember we after like the initial skirmish, we then ended up forming the rear guard, and that was really cool because uh, I think by that point, I think uh, Joe was like, "Oh, what what the hell am I doing?" I'm like, look, it's all right. I got you. I got you. <laughs> so I was just like, sort of, I was like a viper just whispering into his ear, going, right, bring the lads around here. Bring the lad, like, get get some blokes over there. Right. Now we're going to start moving and all that. He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. This sounds, this is good. This is good. This is good. And then um, after, <laughs> it was quite funny because like, afterwards, um, the, um, the brigade commander, he went, that rear guard action was, was brilliant. And uh, I was like, "Ah, oh, yes, of course it was. Of course it was." <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that was manic though, like in the woodland, because like we got. Because I think at one point, I don't know if it's like you said, like you know, with the actions, everything. You can't remember everything that happens, but I'm sure we got we got cut off at one point. I think we and we had to fight through. So where we're fighting the rear guard, I'm sure the French did actually sort of get behind it and we sort of had we before that pocket closed we just managed to get out of it and rejoin the main force yeah i've got a vague memory of that because i remember we had to climb over uh, some barbed wire and a wall on the edge of the um at the edge of the sort of cops of woods just past the uh, what the back of hugamon and i remember um us all really struggling to do that because it's very hard to do in those tight fitting pantaloons that we had to wear and uh, all the accoutrements that we were laden down with but yeah we did a bit of a fighting retreat back to our own line 
And then we fell back into the sanctuary of, of Hugemon. And wow, how cool was that to defend the actual walls of Hugemon from from the French? That that was a pretty damn cool memory. Pretty much up there with my uh, Imperial Guard memory that I mentioned a few minutes back. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, because we, we got in. I can't remember if this was on... I think, no, I think it was on the second. Because on the first day, we just ended up going in there and fighting a bit then it then it all stopped but i can remember the second day where we started out in the main field and you know we, we started off in line then we ended up in squares with the cavalry coming past us and that was you know that was pretty cool um uh, like i i i can remember the cavalry coming towards us and i'm just stood there with the square going i'll sod this <laughs> but then again it's that living historian food because i then afterwards when i thought about it i went there would have been a bloke stood there at Waterloo in the squares. Obviously, there was more cavalry and the fear of life factor, seeing all those horses coming towards him. Although we stood there in a the square, he would have probably just stood there and go, I'll just I'll sod this. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, then we ended up going into Hugamon and we closed the gates and then we started fighting on the battlements. And at that point as well, we sort of split ourselves into two halves where Bristol commanded one section and I then ended up commanding another little section as well because Joe I think was sort of further down towards the gate and he turned around to to me he goes right the lads are up on the far right just take take control of them and just you you know what you're doing just go on with it Pete <laughs> I'm like, yeah, right, oh. so um I, I was already I was, I was primed and loaded I was like right let's go over this wall and pop a shot off and um I went up there, barked a few orders out, and I came up, I stepped up to the wall. I think it was Tingy, I think. I think Tingy had just fired around. He'd come off the wall to reload. I then came up onto the wall, because I couldn't see anything at that point. I then came up onto the wall. I looked over, and it was just like that scene out of Starship Troopers when Rico looks over the wall, and there's the sea of bugs <laughs> out there. And I looked over, and it's just literally all you could see was blue. <laughs> And I was like, Jesus Christ! <laughs> and again, afterwards, it's that there'd have been there'd have been a guardsman at Hoogamont would have looked over the wall and said exactly the same thing while they're trying to swarm it. <laughs> so yeah, it was like um uh picking them off on that, and then obviously the gates got broke, not broken literally, we got told to do it in the script, and then we had to fight for the gates, which nearly turned into a real fight, but I I, I kept cool and calm and collective. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and and seeing that sort of wall of of blue, it almost makes me think: uh, Are they French? By God, they are. Form square, <laughs> which I think we were saying at the time. <laughs> we were. Oh, oh yeah, the sharp, I think the sharp quotes were being bound about like mad. I think at one point or another. But yeah, that uh, fighting for the gate. There's a there's a photograph of us doing that as well, just as we're pushing the gate shut. Because I can remember going up to the gate, and uh, we had to close. It. And the thing is, the French had got this thing about getting into Hugamon. I think it's because they never took it in real life. I think we're trying to close the gate. We're like the bloody gate won't close. And we got one side, the right hand side, closed, and the lads were holding it up. And I was like, "What's bloody going on here?" And I saw there was this bloke dressed as. Um, uh, oh, he was a guard's pioneer, dressed as one of them. And he had his foot wedged under the door. So <laughs> I, can't, I gave my musket to someone. I can't remember who it was. I gave me bacon to somebody. But it's that heat at the moment. I was like, right, take this. 
I, I took me regiment, had me regimental. I lost me regimental cap. I don't know where that had gone. That, that had flown off at some point while trying to close the gate. So I stormed this. It, obviously, it's the height of summer. And I got, I, I'm red like a beetroot because <laughs> we've just like, been fighting up on the walls and all that. I walk out of the gate, push this French bloke out the way. Then the bloke, then this bloke who had his foot wedged underneath the uh, gate. I was like, right, move. And he's like, stood there looking at me. <laughs> and, he, and he gives me this like, like smile. And I was like, your mates ain't getting in here, son. And I just grabbed hold of him. I bloody moved and grabbed him and just launched him out of the way and come back into the, uh, then got, got back into the uh, confines of the gate. And we got the gate shut and it went done. And so, yeah, I, I'm, I'm convinced if the Victorian Cross had been around back in the Napoleonic era, I would have won the Victoria Cross. <laughs> I was shouting at a Frenchman. Doing your bit for international relations as ever, hey? <laughs> but it is but, it is also worth mentioning, in comparison with, with 2015, is the 2018 visit... We did it authentically in terms of our sleeping arrangements. So we had um, blanket um, camp set up. Um, we were sleeping just on, on straw that just happened to be at the event and we put a few blankets down. It was boiling hot anyway. But it was um, it was a great display because we were really close. We were inside the wall garden again, but re- right right next to the sort of chateau of Hougamon itself. But we had such a great display because people were just walking past and like guys were just asleep under these authentic blanket uh, sort of tents. We had a documentary crew from the US over and, you know, the 2018 event was brilliant. I'll definitely book for doing that again, but I know this podcast, uh, it unfortunately can't go on forever, can it? Unfortunately not. Um, I think uh, from that, I think we could probably stretch it out another good half hour, another 40 minutes with anecdotes from 2018. That's just that was just what three of them. <laughs> I think there's a good fifteen or twenty antidotes from Waterloo, but they uh, they're for another time. I think. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Living History UK podcast and entertained it as well because uh, it is a little bit different to what we normally talk about. So uh, I hope that's given you an insight into the into us into our lives as living historians. But if you'd like to support us in the work that we do, please consider becoming a member on Patreon for as little as £1 a month. And also watch our YouTube documentaries as well, because not only can you hear us via audio, you can also watch us as well on YouTube for our documentaries. And we've got some cracking little documentaries on there that I do say so myself. So, Steve, as ever, absolute pleasure, my old mate. And to the rest of you, Stay safe, and until next time, keep history alive. If you've enjoyed this podcast and want to support it, then why not send us a PayPal donation? All donations help us pay to host the podcast and for us to create new content for your enjoyment. Furthermore, if you would like to submit a question or even a subject matter for the podcast, join Patreon and send us a message. We'd love to hear from you. The links are in our bio. Until next time, keep history alive. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? 
They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.